Welcome to Vino Week, Episode 5, brought to you by Vino 101. I'm Bill. Hey everybody, it's Al. Welcome to our latest rendition of Vino Week. What do we we got, Bill? Well, you know, we should say we've been uh, away for a week or two. Life gets in the way of our fine endeavor here. So um, we do aim to try to keep this consistent as possible. Yep, we're, we're aiming. Yeah, life does get in the way. I guess that's uh, that's properly said. <laughs> it, it, it getting does. in the way a lot lately. All right, so there's, you know, as usual in the world of wine, there's always interesting stuff happening. So um, we have a lot of uh, um, articles lately sort of around the business of wine. So one of the ones I found is about the about how uh, Prosecco – in in Europe and specifically articles focused in the United Kingdom from the drinks business has seen a pretty big um, increase in market share over champagne coming out of the recession. It's growing, I think, up 40% last year alone in the UK. Um, and so the article does a pretty deep dive into um, what's selling and why and basically poses the question of whether or not the bubble will burst is, you know, expansion of the as as Italian winemakers make more of that wine, you know, do they you know they start to sacrifice quality, and you know, does it become oversubscribed, if you will? Hmm. Yeah. I. I well, I don't know. I know the the big companies over there. I mean, it's it's like a what's the price for prosecco around here? I don't even know what it is in the UK. Uh, it's it, it it's always been reasonably, you know. So that's like, you know, asking what the price of Cabernet is, right? Okay. You know, it's... Sorry it's, to put you on the spot there. Yeah, well, I mean, it's... Well, I guess what I'm trying to say is, you know, it can range... It, it can range from, you know... I would I would say it's cheaper than champagne. You know, sort of at, from a, you know, quality to quality standpoint. The article does talk a little bit about sort of knowing the difference between the different types of... um um I guess where it's sourced, right? So DOC versus DOCG. And, you know, that'll definitely tease out sort of the quality of the wine. And I think it, it, uh, I, I, you know, I remember Prosecco always being very favorably priced here in the UK to answer your question specifically. Mm, well, I mean, I, you know, okay. relative to like going out and buying a, you know, a proper bottle of champagne. I think what we're seeing is we see there's lots of Prosecco out there, and most of it is, you know, to my mind, when I look at it, I haven't bought any recently, but typically it's in the, eh, geez, I'd say probably like the 8 to $15 range, right in there. I think most Proseccos are kind of in that range. And then there's a, a different level, like you said, the DOCG wines, and those are made in a, a, a more prestigious area. And probably a little bit more handcrafted, um, smaller amounts. You know, those they start at, at fifteen and, and then go up, and you could pay thirty, forty dollars for a bottle of those. You know, and you're getting yeah. into champagne territory there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in the sort of lower end of the champagne territory, right? I mean, it, yeah. You know, and again, sort of. I mean, you're what you're detailing there is what I remember is it's. Oh, you know, you can get a nice bubble of bottle bubble ah, bottle bottle of bubbly. You know, as a prosecco, that was cheaper than champagne. So. Yeah, and I, and I, 
I think the problem for Prosecco is, and you, you know, obviously they're making making more of it. When you ramp up, you know, everyone rushes out and grows stuff, and you know, you do cut corners when you're trying to get stuff to market. You yep. know, just make the money. That happens in any business. Um, but I think what they're going to run up against is not just champagne, but I mean, what about cava? I mean, yeah, you know, it's funny. I was thinking that too because I was at a. Uh, we were out at a restaurant recently, and I remember, I mean, it literally went like there was a champagne on the uh, by the glass list that was like 15. There was a Prosecco that was, you know, below 10, and there was a Cava that was like 7 or 5. <laughs> yeah, you know? that's 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 what's going to gonna really hurt them. Yeah. I mean, you know, and that, that's a pretty, a Cava market is, is a really big market, and there's some great Cava out there, so... Yeah, and I don't, you know, I don't, you know, there are many people who don't, it's champagne to them, you know, as an American consumer. It's sparkling wine. They don't, and they call it champagne. Yeah. You know, it's like going into some places, there's, I remember places in the South where you, you know, you'll ask, you know, what kind of Coke do you want? (laughs) And and they're, you know, that could be, you know, a root beer, a Dr. Pepper. (laughs) They use the word Coke synonymously with soda pop well i always look at prosecco as you know if you're out i think a lot of people look at it as bubbles that are literally affordable i mean you want a glass of nice champagne you're going to spend you're going to spend 20 bucks yeah and then some for a glass of champagne whereas like you said if you could buy um, a glass of prosecco for eight ten bucks hey man that's and it's good. I and it's good. I mean, it's good. Most people, the difference, the discernible difference there, which is all sort of speaking of the complexity of the wine and what's going on with it. A lot of people don't care. They just want, you know, a little bit of those champagne characteristics that you can get from all of these, you know, from Cava and Prosecco and all that stuff. So, and it's got that allure of, of luxury, you know, yeah, it's exactly. a nice yeah. glass, it's got the bubbles going and, you know, the table next door, look at them. They're having champagne. They don't know you're having Prosecco. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. there there's that. Yep, for sure. And I, so, I think that the growers, the people that, that grow grow the higher end stuff, those are the ones that really are having a tough time and are probably bristling more than anybody. Because if you got a Prosecco grower that's making a really high quality product, they're cutting their yields and uh they're holding it in the bottle a little bit longer, or they might be even like making it in the art artisan way and, and um actually doing the fermentations in the bottle they got to charge more for that product and how's the consumer going to know the difference between their prosecco which is priced at 30 bucks and the guy's prosecco next to it is priced at eight yeah exactly don't know don't care the consumer doesn't care yeah yeah so that's that's the that's the dilemma for them so there's a there's some infighting there also as a result of what's going on here i believe you know that that's an undercurrent yeah, that's true. And there were, you know, and it was interesting. There were there were a fair number of sparklers that we, you know, we had. We went to the Gambara Rosso this year, right? Yeah, we tried a lot of. Um, I mean, we tried a lot of uh, French Accords, I think, didn't we? Yep. I recall. Yep. I have I have I, yet to um, swing back around and buy some, but I'm glad you did bring that up. Real quick, uh, anyone wants to have um, a reference bottle of Suave? I mean. The epitome of Suave, what I think, the modern-day Suave, go out and find yourself some 2012 Pirapan La Roca Suave. I remember that bottle. I, do we have a 2012? I think it was a 2012. 
Yeah, we did. That's just you remember. Do you remember trying that one? I do. I do. Uh, that I is, remember uh, us talking about how, you know. So first of all, that's sort of it was. If I recall, it's 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 expensive for a suave. Yeah, it's. Uh, I think it's. It I, starts around. It's around twenty five bucks. I think. I mean, I should say it's 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 higher priced. Yeah, than you might expect to pay for a suave. However, you're getting a really um, awesome true to type bottle of what can be done with that wine. Yeah, and I, and I think we might have talked about it on our suave podcast, but 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 in any event, it's out right now. It's the 2012. It's not going to be around very long. I didn't make a whole bunch of it, and. Um, you know the the upcoming vintages might not have have the same uh, they might not might not have the same weight and girth and, and density and they're going to be a little bit different. So if you're if you're a white wine fan and you like um, you want to try something different and something uh, fantastic, head to your store and find some. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Well, that that you know this conversation dovetails nicely with another article I read this week about um, well not this week it was well it was from last week April second. From the wine curmudgeon posted this on on um, how the you know, wine and spirits release their poll of the top ten wines that um, and retail um, um, or what how many of them retail for less than twenty dollars and it was wrapped up in sort of popular restaurant wines because you rarely see bottles that are priced less than twenty dollars most American consumers. I think they gave the number like 95%. The $20 is the threshold. They won't go over that. And, you know, just sort of talking about how, um, you know, the best-selling wines are, you know, who's buying these wines? I guess restaurants. That's kind of what they were, part, you know, postulating. They also brought up Cava and Prosecco in that article. Prosecco in that article. Um, very interesting. But I, it, it, you know, as we were talking earlier you know, I rarely go to a restaurant and order a bottle of wine, typically ordering glasses. And I'm ordering glasses because there's often things on the, the list that I want to try. So I can go out and have a couple of glasses and try two different wines, or maybe even three, depending on whether or not I can convince my wife to try something that I want to try. Yeah, yeah. Well, you get you get so much more diversity. You got to remember you're eating different things also. You know, you have an appetizer, yeah. you know, um, your wife, you know, in our case, my wife, you know, we have different things to try different things. So, you know, she's got her dish. I'm having my dish. What I'm having might not go with just that one bottle of wine that we uh, selected. So I'm with you. I I mean, very rarely. I, I can't even remember the last time I purchased a bottle of wine in a restaurant. Now, I've taken in bottles, but I know exactly what I'm going to be having you know i have a it's all planned out right or you know you've got a special bottle that you want to share sort of damn the food yeah yeah thing you know it's a special occasion or something you want to share or you know the restaurant's going to have something that's going to fit for you you know Uh, the average price i'm looking at this article the average price for the top 10 wines uh was 103 dollars maybe that's maybe that's why i haven't bought a bottle of wine (laughs) yeah 13 dollars a glass um and it's Do up. Man. It's Do up. Man. Well, I think one of the interesting things about that number is it's up twenty percent from last year. It's unbelievable. And that's, but the, all of the, that's big. All, yeah, and it's uh, and it's all your usual suspects. I mean, these are all um, really well made wines. I mean, I don't I don't find fault with any of these, but but these are what I call uh, the restaurant heavy hitters. You got Jordan Vineyard and Winery, 
Stags, Leaps, Wine Cellars, Sonoma Couture, Duckhorn, Cake Bread, Camus, Silver Oak, Kistler. Um, it's odd that Silver Oak is all the way at number seven. I don't know if it says anything about that in the article, but that strikes me as odd. Yeah. Uh, Kistler, Vuv Clicquot, and then Chateau Saint-Michel. So those those are restaurant wines, right? Okay. And I should we should I should clarify that this is about restaurant wines, you know, versus sort of other wines. Um, and if you look through that list too, and listen who's on there, I, I you know, we live near a lot of these folks. They they do a lot of work evangelizing their wines at to restaurants, and they also you know they have in working with their distributors, you know, target sort of. Um, you know, restaurateurs in the area that have multiple restaurant, very successful restaurateurs. Let's just say that. Yeah. So, and I believe, um, you know, when we had talked to Jordan at one Jordan at one time, they were telling us, you know, oh, you know, Florida, giving us big wine cities. Oh yeah, yes, for you know, sure. Um, I, you know, Miami, um, Fort Lauderdale, um. You know that they're you know fairly wealthy areas there, Houston and Dallas, um, kind of giving us the top ten cities, and not necessarily you know you wouldn't think of Dallas, Texas, or Houston as big wine, but there's a lot of money. Well, it's uh, bigger wine than you think down there. Yeah, yeah it's, uh, those are in terms a lot of, of money in that area. Yeah. yeah, in terms of sales and that type of stuff. So, yeah, interesting. Uh, it, it's, uh, these things are always just interesting to me. And, you know, how did they figure that out? You know, what were the top tens? Is that just based on sales or? Yeah, it's uh, the, it, well, it's the top sellers. Yeah, it's, it's based on sales. And what I what I find interesting, and, and you already kind of keyed on it, you said a lot of these places are around us. Well, I yeah, except for two. Uh, you know, the, the nine and ten is Vouv Clicquot. That's in France. And then Chateau Saint-Michel up in Washington. Right. They're all, you know. They're all here, man, and it's evenly split. You got Napa and Sonoma. Yeah, yeah. So it's uh, well, and you know, as you start digging into these these companies, you find out that their operations are scattered all over California. You know, they've got vineyards in Sonoma and Napa, and you know, Central Valley. Oh yeah, San Luis Obispo. Well, you know. if you, and we'll talk about this later, but if you have a permit to make X amount of wine, and you're in the business, and you've capped out on your production. Uh, allotment. Well, what do you do? You look somewhere else to make the wine. Yep. So that's what happened. Yep. I don't know. I think recently, um, I don't have it in front of me, but um, I believe, who was it? Um, Camus just paid a million dollars for um, in a settlement for overproducing uh, at their Napa facility. Wow. Sell- to, pay, <laughs> to pay to fine? Yes. Yeah. So. And you know that fine was probably just a small amount of the profit that they made. But yeah. the, the point is that uh, you know all of the, the there's there's an eye on these 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 places that make the wine. They're they're making wine and they're producers, but they're also you know it's kind of big business for some of these places. It's really big business. Yeah. So you know it's not just a guy out there in the vineyard on his tractor and you know goes into you know his dog walking with him that's the image that the consumer sees <laughs> but there's a little bit more to it than that yes there there are great picking machines <laughs> all right so should we uh, talk about um hop kiln winery you we talked about that earlier you said you wanted to, to 
That's yeah, a local Sonoma I, County winery that has, um, you know, they want to increase their production. And I think, as you said, Bill, I believe they're they're running into some some roadblocks along the way. Well, it's not necessarily roadblocks. They got approved to um, to do what they want to do, um, but it came with ninety seven conditions. <laughs> So, yeah, and I guess that's what I found most interesting about it is just the, um, you know, how regulated, you know, we talk about France being regulated and what we're seeing, I don't know, what I think I'm seeing is all the other places in the United States approaching the same level of regulation and control that the Europeans have. We just maybe haven't caught up yet. Yeah. Um, you know, and it, it's, you know, becoming more and more, not only just sort of, um, you know, not how big you can get, but more on what you can produce and how much you can produce. Um, there are a fair, there's a fair amount of um, uh, news lately around climate change and how it's affecting the wine business. And I think the regulations are sort of um, a response to that. And, um, you know, just trying to, you know, regulate things so there will be wine. And of course, with the drought happening in California, it's becoming even more and more um, important, I guess, to kind of consciously, you know, think about how things get um, scaled. The other thing that's pretty relevant to know about this, uh, to talk specifically about Hopkiln, it's in a in a on a on a road that's pretty narrow. It's right near a, a bend in the road, like a ninety degree bend. Um, and they're, you know, they're just really, I, they're, they're, I think the people of the county and the people that live and work out there have been, hey, you know, I don't want some ginormous factory that's got, you know, overrun with people every weekend and buses and, and we're, you know, we're talking like, you know, coach tour buses down, you know, effectively a two lane country road, like the bus fits in the middle of the road and that's about it. And it's a, it's a pretty popular bike um, yeah, and it's it's another big part of Sonoma County tourism, right? Which is biking. Yeah, so, yeah, so it's, you got that you got that going on too. So I I believe the company um, aren't they? God, I'm trying to think. They're owned by they owned by one of the big houses or one of the big. Nah, hmm. I don't know if it's a big house, but um, Westside Grapes, Seattle-based LLP company, formed in '04 to purchase Hopkiln. Oh, okay, so it's a it's a private private investment firm. Looks then. like it. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. Two thousand four, huh? Yep. Okay. All right. Yeah, I remember. You know, I remember it was one of the places I I remember tasting when I first got here, and they had like two wines. They had like yeah, they have some co- colorful labels. Interesting yeah. labels is what I remember. They had like a Pinot and a, and a Chardonnay. I don't know. You know, I don't know if they've changed any of that now, but. Anyway, I just thought it was interesting in terms of the regulation and sort of, you know, it's not just about how big they can get or their case production, but there's also environmental regulation about sure. what they can grow and how much water they can use and like all that stuff. It's all wrapped up in that. Oh, man. Okay. All right. Well, uh, what else you got? Last thing I got is an article that was in the Financial Times. I don't know. I couldn't actually find it in the Financial Times. They wanted me to register and I just when I was doing that I wasn't ready to do that. So anyway, it's really talking about how climate again wrapped up in climate change, how um 
the vintages are or the grapes are producing earlier because the climate is warmer and that's really driving up the amount of sugar and of course you're getting more alcohol and the article is basically talking about you don't have to have these big alcohol wines to have the complexity um and that there are, you know, there are a number of people who are sort of attacking the market from that standpoint. Where I have just an, uh, an as interesting wine expression that I do with a wine that has a lot of sugar, but I can make it in the same style without, in the same style and the, the same complexity without all the alcohol, um, which I think is really um, interesting. And as we talked about before, you know, we. Um, one of the great things I think about Italian uh, Italian wines or European wines in general is they have wines that sort of run the gamut. You know, it's less about they're really f- sort of focused on what the grape can. I I guess what the grape can express versus like whether or not I'm going to make some super complexity and try to get like you know high sugar because I can get some complexity out of the wine. Yeah, well, and you know they have the they have the constraints of their environment also. You know, they're not. I mean, the way they make wine here or the way the wine can be made in California can be a little bit off-putting to, I I would imagine, a vintner um, in Europe. And probably a lot of it would be based in jealousy because (laughs) we have a, you know, we have a, a, a really good climate and, you know, we don't really have a problem with ripening. I mean, we have one kind of odd, weird, strange year, 2011, and I've been trying those wines. Those wines are good. They, I, you know, it's funny. I remember when we were out, you know, doing some exploration around that time, trying it like right after it had been. I think maybe we had some stuff at Robert Rue. Mm-hmm. And you know, yields are really low, and everybody was kind of you know thinking it wasn't going to be such a good year. All the ones I've tried are are good. Yeah, they're very good. The the Pinots are dynamite. Yeah. The 2011 Pinots now are just god, they're kicking it really well now. And and sort of in contrast to 2012, which was a big production year, but consistently doesn't have anywhere the complexity that I've tasted in the 13 or or an 11. Yeah, the, the wines are. I I like to call them. They're quiet. Yeah. They're, yeah, they're they're quiet and when they're well, good, they're true to type. But it's not like wow, you know, you taste a. And we've had a couple thirteens recently from good producers, and it's like wow, this is pretty amazing stuff. Yeah, yeah. We'll we'll have to wait and see what happens there. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, the other nice thing about the article is they gave a list of wines to try um, that were low alcohol. Um, now they, you know. Um, I think it's Janice that, yeah, Janice Robinson that wrote this. She, she points out that there's, you know, there's a couple on the list that are 13 and a half. Um, but there's a lot of 12s and a couple of 11s, both red. They even had some pink. Uh, they have a rosé on there, Stellenbosch rosé. Um, it's uh, it's worth checking out. You know, I don't, I don't know. Uh, I can't put an actual number on how much wine is treated this way, but – even when I was, you know, and not naming any names, but even even way back when, when I was kind of on the production side of it and got to see what was going on, grape growers, um, they they were paid based on the amount of sugar that the grapes had. 
you know, I'm, I'm, well, they're, they're paid on the weight, but they're also paid there. There's a premium put on the amount of sugar that they can get out of the grapes that they deliver. So if you deliver the grapes at 23, 23 bricks, if you deliver them at 20, 24, you'd get a little premium on top of that. And what's happened is um, in this People have um, over here in the States, we've kind of decided that we like people, a, a wine that's really big and fruit forward and has a lot of punch and has a little bit of alcohol is pretty popular. But there comes a tipping point to where it gets a little bit too much and you would call the wine that gets hot once the alcohol gets beyond a certain point. So winemakers have decided, they said, well, we want that phenolic ripeness. That's what they call it. And in order to get that ripeness, one of the things that comes with it is more sugar and less acid. So what wineries do is they get their wines in and they adjust the wines accordingly for whatever it is. But they shoot for that that maximum ripeness and then they adjust the wine. And what they typically do if the wine is too hot, if it has too much alcohol, is shipped to a place where it's dealcoholized. It's dealked, they call it. Right. And they put it in a spinning cone, and the wine might be fifteen and a half or whatever. And they say we need it spun down to fourteen and a half, and that's what they do. And that's way, way, way more common than you can even imagine. So I'm wondering. I guess my question to you is. If these wines are low alcohol, how are they low alcohol? They're low alcohol naturally, or are they tinkered with? Yeah, don't know. Don't know. Um, they do. I'm putting that question to you, Bill. Yeah. <laughs> don't shoot the messenger. <laughs> um. Yeah, they. Uh, you know, it's been a uh, couple of days since I read the article, but they do talk about. Um, they do talk about some of what you're, what you just covered there. Okay. Um, you know, they're talking about phenoholics and sort of how all that happens. Talk a little bit about when the ripening happens. It's a fairly in-depth article and kind of worth checking out. We'll put a link to it. Um, but, um, you know, I just, you know, I consistently notice that the European wines are less alcohol. Um, and I wonder if the, I wonder if the Europeans are doing that to their alcohol, you know, and what you just described where they're, you know, they're just paid by the bricks or are they just sort of taking what they can get? Yeah, well, I, you know, their 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 uh, vintages, you know, they obviously, they, they vary. They, they've got more variability. But, uh, you know, I've had some, some pretty big bruiser Bordeaux's from, you know, 2009 and 2010 vintage, which, quite frankly, if somebody put a glass in front of me, I'm no expert. But if somebody put a glass in front of me and then tell, it what, tell me what it was, I would, I would peg it as California, you know, Cabernet or something. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, it seems, I mean, border, I, yeah. The wine, the wines, they get pretty big. So, anything else on that? No, that's it. That's it. All right, well, I've got a crazy, weird kind of thing here, uh, article. Um, It was posted by um, W. Blake Gray. It's in the Wine Searcher. And, it has to do with Behringer bringing out flavor strips for wines. Did you hear about this? No. What's a flavor strip? A I wine breath freshener? I think it's awesome, man. Is that a quick like way a- for a, is that a quick way for a DUI? <laughs> I was just trying to strip, officer. Excuse me? Strip? What? Anyway. So 
So these are they're individually wrapped and they're on they're going to be displayed on the store shelves right next to the Behringer wines. And they come in three flavors. Are you ready? I'm ready. I'm waiting. Faded breath. Uh, Chardonnay, Cabernet Sauvignon, and White Zinfandel. I mean, <laughs> of course it would be White Zin. And how can you live how can you leave White Zinfandel out? There's no way. These are master marketers. If you're but, um, but 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 don't worry, they're non alcoholic flavor strips. So you're safe. All right. So we'll, you know, what's in those things? Well, the ingredients are, oh, man. (laughs) Did you take an entire pack of strips? (laughs) Sorry. It sounded like you were reaching for the pack. Sorry. No, it's it's all good. The ingredients are hydroxopropyl methyl cellulose, uh, pulalon. You know what that is? What? Pulalon. Sounds like an island in the South Pacific. You know, you got to have some sugar in there, so there's some sucrose. Uh, hydrogenated castor oil uh, and uh, and flavor. <laughs> Is it castor oil or castor beans what they make, like, ricin out of? Gosh. Like that, you know, that poison? Anyway, wow. So uh, That's an interesting... apparently you, you walk up, you taste those, and it'll tell you what the, the wine's going to taste like. And then if you like one of those strips, you just toss two or three of those bad boys in your cart and you're off to the races. <laughs> um, great idea. <laughs> I mean, it is a good idea. It is a good idea. They're, they're innovators. I mean, nobody else has done it. I, um... You got to know they put a lot of research into that. They had to. So I mean, there's I mean, science. A lot of money. I, it'd be really interesting to see if it, it if it um, increases sales. I mean, it, I mean that's why they do this, right? Um, yeah, and if you want to try them out, you can go to um, Kroger's. Um, I don't know if you have a Kroger's in your state. They're in Kroger's right now, and they plan to roll them out nationwide soon. So coming to a store near you, flavor strips for wine. I'll go. I'm gonna go try. Hopefully, Safeway will have them. <laughs> That's great stuff. I can go try the White Zin strip. That's crazy. Um, all I've got to say is, I I want you to film it when your wife tries one. If you could get her to try it, I, you got to film that for me. <laughs> that might be arranged. Maybe a covert film, <laughs> not for public distribution, but. Oh my gosh, that just would be it'll awesome. be good funny. Uh, moving on. Yeah. Well, I think um, uh, the other big news that uh, I saw, and I think this is significant, we're talking about this, is uh, Chateau Palmer, um, top growth uh, Bordeaux estate. They're converting or they're planning to be fully converted to organic and biodynamic certification by 2017. And uh, what do you think about that? Well, I, you know, I'm no expert on Bordeaux. Um, but I understand growing the conditions in Europe and that region are, um, as you said earlier, much more variable. So I find it really interesting that they're making that commitment. It's got to be a big deal. It is a big deal. I'm trying to – I'm going to look up real quick and see uh, – I was trying to see what a bottle of uh, Palmer goes for. I mean it's not uh, it's not the type of wine that I drink. Right. I, I can't really afford a wine it's like that. Be, it's got to be hundreds of dollars a bottle. Oh, for sure. Let's let's see what a vintage. Not hundreds, but over a hundred. 
Oh, it's it's in the high hundreds, yeah. I'm just guessing. Let's see here. So sorry to hold you up there. No, it's Got- all good. This is good. Live pricing. <laughs> right here on V101. That's, that's com- com- compelling content. <laughs> you can listen to me keystroke right. the computer. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, We're pros. Uh, We're pros. Vintage of 2005, which is an excellent vintage. You're gonna you're gonna be letting go of about 250 bucks. Wow, really? I was off on my pricing, but yeah, that's a wow. that's a good price for a bottle of wine. Yeah. So they're uh, that's their deal. They're they're going uh, they're going they they plan to be certified by Demeter, which is an uh, independent body. Yeah. And um, they've already been working on this for a while, obviously. I believe they have – let's see in the article. They have uh, – says only about 2% of the vineyards across France are certified biodynamics. So they're definitely uh, out in front on this. So um, it'll be interesting to see what, uh, you know, Mouton, Rochelle does, what uh, – I mean, all these – all, all the these big Bordeaux houses, yeah. I, you know, I find it interesting. Like, why are they doing this? You know, is it market demand? Is it, you know, trying to uh, diversifying? I mean, there is some, you know, making a commitment to that um, style of growing and getting experience with it first might be a really good thing. Well, the guy that runs the show there, his name is uh, Thomas Duro, and here's he was asked about the rainy climate in Bordeaux and uh, the fact that it makes it harder to pursue organic and biodynamic uh, methods in the region, and he said that it should not be a deterrent. Quote, in Champagne, the climate is even worse. You either want to do it or not, unquote. Hmm. And uh, so he's, he's he's they're definitely committed to it. Um, one of the the big uh, another big Bordeaux company over there, I believe uh, Chateau Clemens, uh, which which is in Sauterne, was approved uh, for their biodynamic wine principles back in 2011. So, I mean, they're not the first by far, but, you know, there's not a whole bunch of people making that leap. So, yeah, interesting. So anyway, that's uh, I thought that was interesting. Uh, the other thing I think that's kind of uh, pretty interesting is uh, let's see. There's a, there was an article, uh, God, it just came out this week, April eighth. It's by Alex Mann, and it's about the Australian wine industry. And the headline is that less than fifteen percent of Australian wine grape growers made a profit last year. And I find that wow, that's a that's a pretty big number. Yeah. I mean, you got 85% of people doing anything and they're not making a living. Well, what are they doing it for? Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's all um, – they've got several quotes in there. It's a, it's a real – I won't dwell into the details, but it's a, it's a pretty interesting article. And it makes you wonder what's going to happen with Australian wine. wine. Are we only going to see – really expensive Australian wine from now and, and the critter thing is going to be a thing of the past or are they going to be able to, to rebound? But uh, their market has been on the ropes for several years and uh, it looks like it's a continuing trend. Yeah. Or just more consolidation maybe. You yeah. Know, like Yellowtail. I don't know who owns Yellowtail. 
you know, they just basically keep buying people and, you know, they, everything as you, you know falls under one brand. I don't know. Well, you talk about factories. When you see these places over there, I mean, you see some of these wineries. They really are factories, and they they, they churn out hundreds of different labels. And uh, with uh, so, I, I think. Uh, but if you can't make if you can't make money growing grapes, you're not going to grow grapes, which means there's not going to be anybody to process the grapes. <laughs> so, well, and I'm, as you're as you're talking too, I'm wondering. You know, they just went through a significant, and I don't know what they're. Situation, weather situation is right now, but they went through a period of significant drought. Yeah, they've had droughts, they've had fires. Uh, you know, nobody hey, buying the wine. Hey, California, are you listening? Yeah, <laughs> there's a there's a whole bunch going on there. You might want to check it out. Um. <clears throat> so, uh, um, I guess the last thing I have is uh, free flow wines and. Uh, I don't know, if people aren't familiar with Free Flow Wines, they're the guys that um, I, I think they're probably one of the larger companies. But they put your wine that you have in a restaurant; uh, it's in a keg, and then when you order your glass of Chardonnay or Cabernet or whatever it is, um, it's uh, it's been bottled in their kegs, and they have a distribution um, a distribution network throughout the states, and they are now getting ready to um, keg. Sparkling wines and sake, which I think is awesome because there's nothing better than going out to dinner and having to start the meal, you know, a glass of champagne. Yeah, I agree. It's very, wine. it's very luxurious, right? Yeah, it's it's the way to get things going, if you ask me. Yeah, but a lot of times restaurants don't they don't offer that as a you know they don't offer really good stuff or or the selections are really minimal. Because, you know, once you open a bottle of champagne, it goes off, you know, pretty quickly. So, you know, if they don't sell it in the, the next day, it's it's gone and it's usually down the dumper because it's, it's no longer viable. So this is great. This is great for restaurants. It's great for consumers. It's great for the company. I yeah, want to try it out. Innovative company and, and good to hear because that means more restaurants will carry it and, you know, make a nice little tidy profit on a glass of that and have a and consumers have a nice you know something nice to look forward to when they go out and if they offer more and don't lose maybe prices will come down a little bit i mean i doubt that but it could so i got a pressure i got a question for you in closing um will lyons had an um an article uh this week he posted i think it was last thursday about falling in love with wine and he talks about his uh epiphany wine or the wine that he had that he just, you know, just really, you know, made it for me. Right. And I was thinking about that and trying to think of what my epiphany wine was. And I don't, you know, I've had, I've certainly had wines that are like, wow, that is really, really interesting. But I don't, there's not really one wine that I can say is an epiphany wine, but there's definitely wines that I've consumed a lot of. But I did have a really nice bottle a couple of days ago, and I wanted to mention that to everyone. And it's made from a grape called Montepulciano, and it's from Debruzzo. The producer is uh, Nicodemi, N-I-C-O-D-E-M-I. And it's their top-end bottle. And sometimes, you know, you buy wine and you stick it in your wine stash and you kind of forget about it. And this is one of those bottles. I kind of forgot about it. And when I I remember when I first tried it, I bought it years ago, probably three or four years ago, because it's a vintage. The vintage is 2006. And... 
I remember when I tried, I was like, wow, this is, you know, it's really powerful. It's really strong. It's really, you know, it's, it seems like it's a little too oaky. I wonder what will happen if I hold on to it a little bit longer. And what happened was it turned into an epiphany bottle. It is, it's probably the best red wine I've had all year. That's a big statement. Yeah. And I drink a lot of wine, folks. (laughs) (laughs) No, Um, that's a big statement. Yeah, yeah, and it, the Epiphany wine's an interesting thing. I, you know, I, um, yeah, I have to think about that. But it's, uh, yeah, there is there is a bottle that, and uh, you know, not necessarily a specific bottle, but just that you've had that experience where, you know, one, I think it's a couple of things. So one, you drink a bottle and you can, you, it, it, it tastes, it, it just, it's the way it tastes. It's just like you, you. All of this language that you've heard about finish and you know um, p- things that have people use to describe the wine smell and then the palate, um, its body, like all that stuff comes together. Mm-hmm. You know? And I think that's part of the epiphany. The other thing is when you have a wine that's paired with food and you now see how they complement each other and the dish is better with all of the components there. That's also, I think, a pretty, um, you know, a moment that that is special that you can not that you know maybe you remember that moment, but we've all I think we've all if you drink wine you've had and eat you've had that experience where it's like, wow, like I okay I get it all. And I think some of it just has to do with your who you're with, you know, your surroundings obviously, and also with your mood. And I'm trying to think of what my mood was during that. It wasn't a particularly good mood. It had been kind of a long day. <laughs> yeah, kind of a crummy day. I mean, yeah, yeah. And I'm, yeah, and I'm, I'm surprised that I would have that reaction to the wine. And I don't know what it was, but I mean, just super impressive, super impressive bottle. And even, um, you know, my wife, she hadn't had the same day that I had, but you know, she had worked all day. Right. Um, she was, uh, in agreement with the quality of the bottle. Oh, that's so great. we'll definitely post that so we can, we'll find a link that people can find it. No, I don't think you'll be able to find this wine. It's, no, really? it's yeah, it's, I'm, I, I went off on a tangent. It's a 2006. So, I mean, oh, you'd be able to find a newer, I got newer you. version of it, but, I you. but, uh, you know, they, they do a good job. They make a base bottling that's out and it's readily available. It's just their, um, their Montepulciano d'Abruzzo. And it's, I believe the current vintage out right now, it's a 2011 and it's, I, I mean, it's like nine bucks, 10 bucks. Wow. It's super serviceable. This bottle is their, their higher end. And I, I believe I paid uh, a little north of 20 for it when I bought it. Gotcha. So, yeah. So that's all I got. Me too. Thanks for joining, everyone. Uh, was uh, Yeah, we appreciate everybody listening. And if you got any input, you have any questions, you know how to reach us. How do, how do they reach us, Bill? Oh, they can just uh, email us at info at Vino 101. Um, but even better, hit us up on Twitter. Yep, yep. Hey, you have um, we got a post coming out. Uh, aside from Vino Week, we have another post coming out, correct? Yep, we should do that. It'll be up this week, too. All right, fantastic. So, All right, everybody. The winemaker. I guess until next week. Yeah, until next week. Have a good one. All right, thanks, everybody. Bye-bye.